This is Near Death, where we shine a light on some of the darkest stories from the military world. To be honest, it's not for everyone. You'll hear about some pretty traumatic events, and this episode includes some graphic descriptions of war, torture, and references to suicide. If you're okay to keep listening, here's Aidan's story. It's not the death sentence itself, it's the waiting for it to happen because you don't know what day will be your last day. On the night of the 10th of April, my commander came to me and said I had 10 minutes to make a decision. He gave us the choice of we can either try and go out in the vehicles to make a last-ditch attempt to try and break out, or we can go on foot to try and break out on foot and uh, walk 145 kilometres to friendly lines, or we can remain here and surrender officially to Russian forces. Um, Initially, I chose uh, the the surrender because, from my experience in Syria, I've seen how uh, breakouts from encirclements like happen. Um, in Syria, we had multiple times where ISIS would try to break out and they just got decimated by artillery and aviation. So I knew that was pretty much suicide if we, if we did go on it. Um, I was pretty enthusiastic for like trying to walk out. However, I asked my commander how many of us are going and he said probably more than 700 people will be trying to break out on foot. At that point, I realized like with the amount of people that would be trying to get out of a, such a small like, area, it would probably be pretty slim that we would actually be successful. And so I chose to surrender officially because at least that time I wouldn't be in the heat of the moment or the adrenaline if someone captures me. When that time did come to go to the surrender point and it was clarified and settled, um, the the feeling was pretty uh, depressive. I remember I walked into the bunker with everyone else who was surrendering and I saw one of the officers from the uh, other companies that was sat in there who I knew and I remember sitting down with him and uh, everyone was pretty quiet but there was still a bit of humour. Um, the officer I was speaking to, he was he was drinking some champagne and I remember like asking him for some champagne because I thought, like, we're going into captivity, this is last, my last chance to have a free drink at Freedom. And um, we kind of, we we didn't touch on it too much, but like everyone knew what was coming next. Um, so it was pretty gloomy, but there was there was some sort of uh, sense that we would get through this. And I remember as as well at that point because I knew I'm a foreigner, I'm going to be treated differently to the Ukrainians. I'm going to be separated, and at that moment in time, I truly believed that I would be shot on sight. After the initial, like, beat around, it stopped, and then we were put back into the stress positions. Uh, We didn't have any access to food or water. Uh, We were given a bucket to uh, piss in, and um, we we then spent the night in that warehouse just in a stress position against the wall, and we weren't allowed to move from it. The next day, um, intelligence came and they picked out random people who might be of interest to them. Eventually, they picked me out. They took me to the back of a Russian Tiga uh, armoured personnel carrier. 
and I told them I was a Ukrainian Marine. I gave them my uh, Ukrainian military documents. I gave them my passport. And they finished with me. They gave me back my passport, but they kept my military ID. They put me into the stress position again, and then they would come and ask me some questions, like very basic stuff about who I was, like which unit I was with. Um, initially, they said to me that I was a sniper because I had a tattoo, happy days, on my uh, left arm. And uh, my friend Sean, who was also in Mariupol, he also had a tattoo. And I hadn't seen Sean for at least two months before this. So at this point, I initially thought that maybe Sean was killed because they, they said to me that um, they had found us dead, like, found him dead. And I started to like worry that maybe now they think I'm a sniper and I knew about the reputation in like, the military world when it comes to snipers. And I tried to explain to them that I'm not a sniper, I'm, I'm in mortars. Um, luckily, they had someone that was from my unit and they brought him to us and they said, if, if this person doesn't say what you've just said, you're going to be punished. Luckily, the person that they brought to us, I, I knew him from my unit and he knew me and he repeated everything that I had already said. Um, so that avoided any punishment that they threatened with me. Um, they put me back into the warehouse. At this point, it was filled with about 800 to 700 Ukrainians who had all surrendered or been captured. And then 10 minutes later, my name was called and I was taken out and placed into handcuffs and then led into the back of an SUV. Um, and I remember getting into the SUV and seeing on the license plate, it said Donetsk People's Republic. So I knew I wouldn't be going to Russia, I'm most likely going to uh, Donetsk. Um, as, as we got in and they closed the door on me, um, we were driving out of the compound and they turned to me and said like, now you're going to be taken to be shot. Um, I didn't respond to it, I pretended that I didn't understand and just uh, processed in my, my head that this is it, this is how I die. Um, I was thinking about my family and my fiance. Um, and just processing that this is probably like the last few moments that I will have like to think about it. Thankfully, after about an hour's like driving, um, I, I realised to myself that I'm obviously not being taken to be shot because you wouldn't take someone on an hour's drive to just shoot them. So I, I realised we were being taken to the next stage of captivity. At this point, I'd been singled out, so I knew I was going to be going somewhere where violence is going to be pretty common and I was trying to prepare myself mentally for the next phase of captivity which I which I knew was coming which was going to be beatings and uh, interrogations um, we, we drove for another hour and then we arrived in the city of Donetsk um, I was unloaded from the back of the SUV uh, just in front of me stood a man in a blue uniform he said something to me in Russian I didn't understand what he said, maybe because he was drunk or his accent was just too thick to understand. And I remember asking him in Russian like to politely repeat what he said. As soon as I said that, he started beating me with the police baton. I fell to the floor and he continued to beat me a few more moments before dragging me into a building and then put me into an empty room with two other Ukrainians who had bags on their heads stood against the wall. In this room, I saw. I remember seeing on the floor there was uh, bits of like discarded like uniforms and stuff. So I knew that this this room is what I think it is. He then continued to beat me for two hours, maybe an hour and a half. And in between like moments of where he would beat me, he would ask me a question. 
a very basic question of like which unit am I I'd tell him I'm a Ukrainian Marine and then he would beat me and then he would ask me about my position and rank and continue to beat me and at one point he told me to take my clothes off and look at my tattoos um, he saw my Ukrainian trident tattoo as soon as he saw that he started beating me again for that and every tattoo that he saw he beat me for it um, he then stopped to take a rest and at this point I'm in complete fear for my life um, but I was still somewhat like I still had some sort of grasp of like eventually it's going to end um, and it was at the point when he took a rest he was like smoking a cigarette and he basically said to me um, like do you want a quick death or do you want a beautiful death and obviously I said a quick death um, and then he said no you're going to have a beautiful death um, and then just just at that moment he also like pointed to my shoulder and he says did you see what I did to you and I was completely oblivious to like to my injuries and I looked over onto my shoulder and saw I had been stabbed um, as soon as I saw the stab wound um, that's when my my mental wall like broke down because I expected to be beaten and whatnot but I never expected to be stabbed and I seriously believed at that moment was going to be the moment that I would be killed. Because I was being beaten, um, I didn't feel it, so I didn't. I wasn't aware that I'd been stabbed um, because the adrenaline was just keeping me alive, basically, from just the beating. Um, so I never felt it initially. Um, but when, when I saw it and I saw the wound of it, um, I remember thinking to myself, like, I didn't even feel it like, like what the hell? And I was in total fear at that point because I started thinking back to like the ISIS videos or something else to sim similar in that regard. And I was just expecting them at any moment to just take the knife and like stab me in the neck, which they... They did do a few times like like threatening, like they took the knife and they held it against my my neck. And then the other thing that I was scared of as as well was the fact that, that they were both drunk because I could smell the alcohol. So I was thinking that maybe because they're drunk, they might do something that they might not really do if they weren't drunk. Um, so that played a pretty big fear as well. Fast forward to the uh, second month, I was in the uh, Donetsk uh, pre-trial detention prison and I was in a solitary confinement cell that was made for two people, but we had four people in there. And um, gradually, day by day, like I was doing propaganda five times a week. I'd be taken out with a hood on me and uh, put into a stress position and walked to the propaganda room, um, put in front of a camera or be given a phone to make propaganda calls to the British government and then every once in a while the people that were dealing with this they would mention that I'll be going to court soon and I remember eventually it came to the uh, month when the court was like coming it was obvious from the very beginning that it, it was a kangaroo court like nothing was in our favour there was no defence for us we didn't have any time to prepare defence, um, nor did we get to speak to our lawyers before the court. Um, so we we knew that this was pretty much a show for Russia. And um, after a quick discussion, uh, 
a lawyer said that you should plead guilty to mercenaries and because you'll get a lesser charge, you'll get a lesser sentence when you do the appeal. So at this point, we didn't really have any other option other than to go along with the show. And we all took back our uh, not guilty on the mercenary charge and pled guilty. Um, then the next day, it was just more general court stuff and bullshit. And then it was on the Thursday, on the final day, when they read us our sentence, that they sentenced us to death, like all of us. And I was listening to what the judge was saying, like, with the punishments, and I remember just hearing Smirt Nakaz, which is death sentence. And as soon as I heard that, my entire, like, body just, like, went numb. Um, I, I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't cry if I wanted to. Um, I was pretty much just an empty shell, just going along with this whole show. It's not the death sentence itself, it's the waiting for it to happen because you don't know what day will be your last day. And every every now and then, like you'll be taken out to go do propaganda, and the guards would like mention to you, like why why haven't you been shot yet? Um, or they would like be sadistic and say, oh, we're taking you to be shot. So you would always end up leaving the cell, like not knowing if this is going to be like your like final few minutes alive. Um, so it took a very like negative impact on like my mental health. Um, and I remember like after the sentence, like there, there wasn't one moment in captivity where I was actually able to cry. And the moment I wanted to cry was when I got back to the cell after the sentence. And I tried so hard to cry, but I was unable to because I was like, I just didn't know like w what's going to happen. Like there was, there was the fear and the intimidation. And I remember just trying to force myself to cry to just get some emotion out, but it was impossible for me at that moment. I remember at this point, I, I still had like some sort of hope that we might be exchanged. So it wasn't very initial. Um, I remember that like every day we would like be reminded that I'm going to be getting shot at some point and you'd hear something on the on the propaganda radio that they're setting up the the stages for us to be executed and that that would get me down negatively and but then I wouldn't I would try to like move my mind away from it so I'd use like dark humor like with the guys I was with to like just joke about stuff and we'd find ways to like take our mind away from it um, there'd be moments where I'd be just thinking to myself and just trying to like get my mind out of like that place um, and I, eventually I just said to myself if 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 it happens it happens but I think for me the biggest like like killer of it was the, just the waiting of like the unknown at this point I'd been moved into a cell with a creation guy from my battalion a friend and um, we found a razor blade that was hidden in the bars in the window and I remember like laying down on my bed at night time like thinking about like just ending it all and I was very close to just doing it because I was fed up of just sprouting out all this bullshit on camera and um, the only reason I didn't do it was because of my friend Prebic who was in the cell with me and I was afraid that if, if I killed myself like they might punish him because he didn't stop it even though he was asleep um, and thankfully because of him I didn't do it um, because two weeks later after that 
was when we were taken out of a cell and when we were taken out I thought I was just being taken out to do propaganda. They put the bag on me and then they called his name and then I started to like get scared because like they, they never do that, it's always just been me on my own. And we were, were being taken, I've memorised the path that I go to the propaganda room, we're going along the same similar path. And I remember we would get to the gatehouse and I, I can't see anything, I've got a hood on my head, I've just memorised because I've gone out on this path so many times. We walk past the place where you would turn to go do the propaganda and I'm like in total fear now because I'm being taken somewhere I've never been taken before. And eventually we go down some steps and they take the hood off and I, I see that we're in some sort of like processing like area. And um, the guards' attitude changed, like it became a bit more relaxed. Um, we, they didn't care about us being in a submissive stance. Um, the guard told me to follow him, and I was able to look at him like as as a person, like which you were never able to do before. Um, like if you ever looked at the guard, like they would beat you, and it it was really weird, and I wasn't sure what was going on exactly. He took us round and he took his phone out and made us like say like oh we've been watered and we've been fed, um, like we've not been beaten, and then made us sing the Russian anthem again, and then they put put me in and they did the same with uh, my Croatian friend and they put us into a small cell, um, and we sat on a bench just waiting to figure out what's going on, and then we heard one of the guards uh, come to the cell next door. He opened the slit up. And I heard him say to the people that were in there, so it's like, you're not going to pick up a weapon again, like, you're not going to go back to fight. And then I, I heard this and I was whispering to Prebic, like, did you hear that? Like, why, why would he say that? Like, 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 I was whispering it. And Prebic remained silent because I think he was processing, like, what was going on. And I remember when I heard that, there was that sense of, like, hope. But at the same time, I, like, there was my second voice in my head who was telling me, like, don't believe it, it's a trick, like, this is, this is going to be something bad. And then eventually I heard another guard who came in later, um, who spoke to one of the guards that was just observing, and I heard him say that, uh, like, like, what's going on? He uh, then said that there's a obmin, which in English is exchange. Again, I heard that, and I again whispered to Prebic, like, did you hear that? Like, he said exchange. Um, they they lined up all the Ukrainians that was in the cell next door to us. There was about 35 of us. Um, they put bags on our head, and then we were instructed that when when we are given the command, we're going to walk out single file. I was first, and they we went out, and uh, there was a, a military truck waiting for us. Um, there was a guy in in uh, camouflage clothing. He took a photo of myself and then asked for my name and I was instructed to get to the back of the truck. As soon as I got to the truck the attitude changed again to aggressive and violence. There was a guy there with duct tape, he duct taped my eyes and then he duct taped my uh, arms together and then uh, I was lifted into the back of the truck, thrown into the back and uh, forced to sit down with my legs spread open. At that point he kicked me in the nuts um, and then he instructed me to hold my hands above my head and another person would come, sit down, and then I put my hands over him so that we're interlocked. Um, I, I, I was, wasn't really too sure if, like at this moment, because like, we'd gone back to violence, so I thought maybe we were being transferred to another like prison deeper into Russia, maybe the front lines collapsed or something. And I remember um, once we got moving, um, I remember hearing like the other foreigners, like Sean and the others who were like, like 
like shouting because of like people stepping on their foot or something and um, the guy who was in front of me I remember whispering to him like asking like who is this and um, he, he was like shut like sort of like shouting to a degree like like a loud whisper like telling me who he is and I, I realized it was my battalion commander uh, Major Bravo Evgeny and I'd last seen him when I was in the Abob prison um, and then he was also on my prison block for the past six months as well so I was a bit relieved to see him and I knew if he's here like it must be something big and it wasn't until the next morning that we uh, arrived at an airport because I could hear the uh, I could hear the planes and the equipment and then also during this journey the duct tape that was around my eyes came loose so I was able to see through the bottom of it um, so every once in a while I would have a glimpse at like what's what I can see through the back and I could see like a built up like modernized like area compared to Donetsk which is primarily a shithole um, and eventually we, we got unloaded and like led into the arrival uh, area of the Rostov airport where you would normally go into after, after you get off the plane and um, they took the duct tape off and then I, I caught my glimpse of the uh, Saudis who were in the, the traditional like clothing I was wondering like who it is exactly um, we went to sit down on some chairs and it was me and the nine other foreigners and they, the Saudis came over to us and one by one they gave us a medical assessment to see if we're fit to fly. Um, I remember they asked if I had any injuries but I didn't tell them because I was like afraid that maybe they're, they're working for the Russians um, so I just lied through that and it wasn't until a few hours later when the command was given that we were taken to an airport terminal bus and the bus drove us to the plane and at, at that moment the the MP that was like guarding us he said like when when the bus stops you're gonna listen to my instructions you're gonna go to the plane one by one if anyone does anything that I don't say you're gonna get electrocuted um, so we we went one by one we didn't want to get electrocuted of course and uh, I remember climbing the steps I remember when we sat down the, there was the sense that like this is happening but at the same time I was still in like dreadful fear that like something's gonna go wrong and we're gonna be taken off um, so I, I think it, it was when we finally took off that some sense of like I'm free like setting however I, I was still in shock um, and I remember as we were taken off um, I could smell cigarettes being smoked and I said to the Saudi security guy who was like stood in front of me, I was like, I, I gestured to him like, do you have a cigarette? And he was like, oh, you, you want a cigarette? And I was like, yes, please. And I remember as soon as he got his cigarettes out, like all the other foreigners like caught wind and they're like, can, can I have a cigarette? Um, so we, we ended up chain smoking on, on the jet. And um, I think it was like at that moment, we, we realized that we're going home, um, but still we were still in like deep shock and we then learned that there was an onboard like kitchen uh, because it was a Saudi jet, so they had all sorts of like like five star like VIP like food. So we ended up like ordering like all sorts of like crazy shit. Um, and then the, the the Saudis came and gave us like new clothes to like change into. I went into the uh, I remember I went into the toilet and there was a mirror and I remember just like staring at it for like a couple of moments, just like just like thinking like like I'm no longer in that place.
Near Death is a BFBS creative podcast produced by Gisela Waldron and me, Joe Cowan. Sound design is by Sean Harper with original music by Will Farmer. Our executive producer is Alex Griffiths. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and why not leave us a review? And if you've been affected by any of the themes discussed in this episode, support is available at bfbs.com audience support.